It's the 17th of May, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's been said that I've been poor and I've been rich, and rich is better. I think Mae West said it. I think Cher said it. It's attributed to a lot of other people. What they forgot to leave out was if you're rich, you'll live longer. And that's our top story. A study from Norway, a public health study, looked at a large percentage of the population and compared those who are in the top 1% richest and top 1% poorest, and there's striking differences in life expectancy. In fact, 14 years longer for men, eight years longer for women when you look at those who are richer. So money may not buy you love, but it'll buy you a few years. This was not just seen in a Norway study, it was also sort of replicated in an earlier study from the United States. I don't know what this means for arthritis patients, but you might advise your patients to work on their income. A nice study comes out of Otis looking at the risk of pregnancy outcomes in patients who have psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. We know a fair amount about what happens in pregnancy in RA, namely that not everybody goes into remission and that there's a substantial number, as many as half of patients, who will have difficulties during their pregnancy with their RA And it's the mother's health and maternal disease activity that actually determines more of the fetal outcome than does any medicine. This is also important in other inflammatory arthritis such as PSA and AS. A fairly large study um, looked at uh, uh, two cohorts, followed them forward, looked at activity, and showed that PSA and AS patients have a significant risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes including preterm delivery, where there's an increased adjusted relative risk of 1.8 higher uh, or 80% higher in PSA and 380% higher, 3.82, in ankylosing spondylitis. Similarly, uh, a higher rate of cesarean sections with a 63% higher risk in psoriatic arthritis and a 500 or 5.82 relative risk in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. Turns out that the use of steroids in such patients also increases the risk of these adverse outcomes for the mother. So again, we do need to worry about uh, disease activity uh, and our first order of business should be controlling disease activity before patients get pregnant or as they go into pregnancy. A nice bit of information comes from a a large nationwide, actually worldwide study uh, that looked at many, many studies and specifically looking at the use of um, disease sup- uh, natural dietary supplements, meaning homeopathic, nutraceuticals, these sort of things. The worldwide use of these um, natural dietary supplements is seen in almost 50% of RA patients. The number was 47% specifically and did not vary according to where they looked around the world in these many different studies that they found. Um, while patients or those reporting said that half the patients responded, um, there was also issues of adverse events, 13%. Um, and the real problem was that only 30% of the patients had informed their physicians they were taking natural dietary supplements. I think it's something we need to worry about, something we need to ask about, because patients may be relying on those agents for efficacy they think they're just as good as the prescription drug and maybe safer because those don't come with an eight-page handout from the pharmacy. Um, CMV infection, you know, this comes up sometimes in our 
patients. Our patients are immunosuppressed, they're on steroids. Um, you hear about rare, bizarre cases of patients who are hospitalized. A nice uh, a review of 14 patients who had CMV infection in autoimmune disease found that the vast majority of them had fever, undiagnosed fever. Many of them were in the hospital. 13 of the 14 were on steroids before or during the hospitalization. And eight of them had co-infections. The real problem here is that four of them died, four out of 14, not a good number. And they tended to have long hospitalization stays, which had bad outcomes, probably because they were not easily diagnosed. This may be one of the infections that our patients may be at risk for, especially if they're on steroids. Uh, low back pain is highly prevalent in our society. Just a number that comes from a recent Annals of Internal Medicine article from May 14th that amongst U.S. workers, 26% have chronic low back pain and that 5.6% it is severe low back pain. Those are numbers that will bring you business and that will be difficult to manage. You know, there is this problem of uh, statin-induced myopathy. You know, they are HMGCR positive, they have a necrotizing myopathy, uh, and uh, you can withdraw therapy and they may get better, but some of them go on to have chronic courses, and the question is, how are those patients gonna be managed? Um, a review of the PCSK9 inhibitors. PCSK9 inhibitors includes drugs like Repatha. These are newer agents designed for refractory, difficult to treat uh, hyperlipidemias. They work by uh, inhibiting the LDL receptor and lowering, therefore, LDL levels along with other uh, lipids, and they're highly effective. Um, and sort of a small study that looked at a number of patients who were given these PCSK9 inhibitors uh, for their hyperlipidemia shows, number one, that they don't have worsening of their CK and myopathies. These are patients who have, by the way, um, myopathy from statins. So that's good, but also their CK is actually lowered, although not significantly, from a mean of 956 to 419. Um, and more importantly, that their uh, HMGCR antibody titers decreased, and that two out of the eight showed significant improvement in their myositis. So this may be an alternative for patients who have difficult uh, myopathy and, uh, and may also have um, uh, statin-related issues where you can't use the statins, this may be a compelling choice. You know, there is also a problem in managing GCA patients who can't take steroids. They're elderly, they may have comorbidities, they may have diabetes. Um, steroids can be difficult to tolerate. We're often looking for a steroid sparing agent to use in these patients. And there's been a number of studies, often many of them not well done using methotrexate with mixed results. A recent report looked at 83 patients uh, on methotrexate on a mean dose of 13.5 uh, milligrams per week and 83 who did not receive methotrexate. This is open label, real world patients. Bottom line is that those who are on low dose methotrexate showed less relapse rates and that was significant, almost a 68% reduction in relapse rates but no change in steroid use. So I think that what we hear from the people who look at this data and report on this is that we need studies like this but we really need well-designed studies especially ones that are gonna use serious doses of methotrexate, more like 15 to 25 milligrams per week, as opposed to many of these studies which are hampered by this one, low doses, but in this case, low doses seem to be good enough. So I have a bevy of studies on gout to discuss that I think are really interesting. Number one, you know, dual energy CT scans, these beautiful pictures of urate deposition disease with total body urate 
um, uh, stores that are surprising and shocking and whatnot, uh, this is a test that's actually becoming more widely available. And, and if you talk to your radiology department, you'll be surprised if they can do it. You know, the pictures show you more than what you expect. Uh, the question is, how good are they in diagnosing gout? I don't think it takes the place of clinical diagnosis with laboratory and crystal identification, but this may be important in management or diagnosis of some patients. It turns out in a review of the literature, 10 studies that they looked at, the sensitivity is good, it's 81%. The specificity is great at 91%. When they applied this to patients with earlier disease, um, not quite so good. The sensitivity dropped significantly down to 55%, although specificity remained high, suggesting that dual energy CT or DEX scanning is most valuable in patients who have established gout. Um, a large Medicare analysis looked at gout patients, specifically looking at the issue of chronic pain and find a two, finds a two-fold increase in chronic pain in gout patients. And we don't, um, this may not be surprising to you, maybe it is. Gout tends to be an episodic disease and pain tends to be an episodic issue. But to have a two-fold increase is substantial. Uh, and given the fact that it's like over 9 million patients in the United States, I think the number is 9.3 million new, new estimates, um, and that's like, what, that's eight times more than rheumatoid arthritis. Um, pain is a big issue. And what is also seen from these studies is that the use of urate-lowering therapies, such as Fabuxostat or allopurinol, was associated with significant reduction in chronic pain, where the hazard ratio dropped to 0.72, or a 28% drop in pain when those are being used. So the big goal in gout is what? A serum uric acid level of six or less if you have to Tophaceous gout, five or less, you know, this was a big issue between the American College of Physicians who says you don't need to monitor urate levels and they didn't buy into treat to target in their guidelines. Of course, we as rheumatologists do monitor uric acid levels and believe in treat to target and its benefits. And interesting studies in the literature about 87 patients who were followed and looks at what happens to um, uh, their images, both on x-ray and on CT, uh, when they were given a treat-to-target regimen. So half were given a treat-to-target regimen, the other half were not. After two years, actually there was no real difference in x-ray scores or joint space narrowing scores on plain x-ray, but CT erosion scores were significantly decreased in patients who are on the T2T regimen. Uh, and also they actually had lower total urate volumes as measured by again, dual energy CT scans, suggesting that there's a systemic reduction in urate levels when you do a better reduction in systemic urate levels when you do T2T. Um, lastly, uh, one of my pet peeves, does gout happen in RA patients? There's an inverse relationship with it, yet meaning that someone has RA really shouldn't have gout, and someone has gout really shouldn't have RA, and that's generally true, but yet we see consults and diagnoses all the time of patients who are diagnosed with, you know, everything, spondylitis, vasculitis, gout, RA, and lupus, and you, you know that these are all inaccurate diagnoses. You often see RA and gout on the same page together, and you gotta assume that most of those are inaccurate. And I've often said that it's one or the other. If you can't get it from the history, do a, you know, serologies and a uric acid, and that'll help you figure it out. But there is a small percentage of patients with RA who have gout, and this is drawn from a number of, of, of basically uh, inferential sor sources and indirect ways. Um, the VA um, 
the VA uh, prospective study on rheumatoid arthritis has actually looked at this. It's a large study of almost 2,000 patients with RA, and when they looked at their records, they found that 17% of their RA patients had hyperuricemia. Secondly, that 6.1 had a diagnosis of gout. Now, I'm sure these were based on, you know, administrative records reviews, claims data, looking at ICD-10, ICD-9 codes. So these were not necessarily verified um, diagnosis of gout, but, you know, gout in a VA clinic, probably pretty accurate. So that shows you the magnitude of the problem, and it does exist, uh, and it can be hard to manage such patients. Uh, often you don't know what you're managing, uh, managing one way or the other. I have a few that are taking urate-lowering therapy in addition to their standard uh, rheumatoid therapies. Uh, I'll give you one sort of pearl, and that is uh, leflunamide is an effective DMARD that is approved for use in rheumatoid arthritis. It's never really been studied in gout, but it is a urate-lowering drug. It actually has the ability to drop uh, urate levels by as much as 20% in patients who aren't receiving other urate-lowering therapies. One of my other pet peeves, methotrexate and lung disease. Does methotrexate make rheumatoid lung disease worse? Now, let's be clear. Methotrexate causes an acute hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Acute onset, shortness of breath, white out in both lungs, hypoxia, stop methotrexate, give them steroids, they get better, everyone's wonderful, happy, go home. That's quite different than RA lung. Severe disease, long-standing disease, seropositive disease, nodular disease, and a slow, insidious decline in lung function with an interstitial lung disease uh, and labs and PFTs that reflect that. Of course, your pulmonary colleagues are you know, telling your patients not to take methotrexate and if they have ILD, and that makes no sense because you need methotrexate to do your best combination therapy. Um, so this was looked at actually by a UK study group. They looked at two um, large cohorts of early RA in Wales and Ireland um, and assessed them for whether or not they had ILD. That was a few thousand patients. They found amongst them 92 eligible patients who had ILD. About a third of them were given methotrexate um, during their, their course of management, uh, and two-thirds of them were not. The bottom line was when they looked at the, the risks associated with methotrexate and incident ILD, it was not significantly increased. The odds ratio is 0.85, and it crossed over one uh, in the confidence intervals. Moreover, the use of methotrexate was associated with a reduced risk of developing ILD, or, and if it did happen, a delayed risk. That's kind of surprising. Our last report I'm not going to talk much about, and that's generic price fixing with um, uh, um, that came up this week in many um, big articles in New York Times and Reuters and uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, I'll refer you to the, our website and the link that we have. You can read the article, which gives you a good synopsis. You should really should look at the 60 Minutes piece that's on television. That's, uh, that's one of the links we have in there. It's really eye-opening. Um, you know you've seen this for a long while. Plaquenil used to be a cheap dr drug. Non-steroidals used to be cheap drugs. They're not anymore. I once went to get a prescription for 60 pills of prednisone, which used to cost about 3 or $4, and they wanted to charge me $60. I said, excuse me, I'm a rheumatologist. I know what I'm, I'm paying for here. Well, that's actually what happened. So there is an issue of price fixing that seems to be apparent from the records provided, both in the written reports and the TV reports. It, again, is eye-opening. Take a look at it. Uh, hopefully, with all that's going on with the price of drugs, the price of expensive drugs, the rebate system, and now generic price fixing falling under the radar of the current administration, we'll start to see some 
new rules, some more fair treatment for our patients, uh, uh, and ultimately better outcomes for those who have arthritis. Tune in next week. We'll see you. Take care.